Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to uh, the book of Proverbs. And uh, as you know, we have been in Proverbs chapter 23. Uh, we were off last week because uh, uh, Jim Lake was here and he uh, spoke to us. We got a blessing out of that. But uh, uh, we saw so far up into uh, a small section of Proverbs chapter 23, we've been talking about uh, the end result of our, our walk with God. Uh, and I've talked about how that we as parents, one of the things that we endeavor to do uh, through parenting is to establish uh, God's heritage. Psalms 127 verse 3 talks about our very children being God's heritage and His fruit and understanding that. And I, we've been talking about how that God's plan to reach the world um, is, uh, is the family. And, uh, you know, and ensuring that through our walk with God, what we do with the Bible, what we build in our family relationships, establishing your family in the ministry, that God's good work uh, in your life will go on after you and I are gone till the Lord comes back. We kind of got a verse on a Thursday night that kind of fell right into this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, he hath begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And we looked at that and we focused that uh, as the fact that the day you got saved, God began a work in you that is going, he wants to continue uh, till the rapture of the church. And then I, I brought up the point, how does that happen? How does that work if you die, you know, 200, 300, 20 years, 40 years before the rapture takes place and you go off this earth and don't live here anymore? How does that work go on? And of course, the answer to that is it goes on through the legacy of your family as you understand that you as a mom and dad, through your walk with God, you establish that concept. And then God takes it from there. And, uh, you know, there'll be no greater joy or rejoicing. And that's really where we started our study. It was worth verse 24 that said, The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice. Now, we talked about that from a physical aspect of being a human father, but also from a spiritual aspect of the people that you work with and establish in the ministry. And as I've told you many, many times, uh, there's no greater joy or rejoicing in all the world than that of your children standing by your side and ministering the Word of God with you. And as a side note, for the kids that are here this morning and going into camp and for the parents that are here, and as I've said many, many times, we have a very, very, very young church. And there's a lot of, of, a lot of uh, uh, young kid people here, a lot of young kids. Uh, some of your kids in the next three or four years, they'll be growing up and moving into the challenges of, of being a teenager and then going on into adulthood. And if I can just, as a side note, before we delve into this and try to put it all together, allow me to give you just five little things that I think you ought to try to work on and remember and try to communicate this to within your own family, but certainly to your children. And I'm trying to communicate it to you as parents. First of all, number one, without a doubt, make sure you marry the right person. Nothing on this planet will destroy your life and your work for God than getting uh, yoked to the wrong person. Marrying somebody who uh, you never should have married. 
Mary getting into a relationship, stepping outside the guidelines of the Word of God because you're lonely, you want somebody, you can't wait, and so you, you take control of your life, you manipulate the circumstances, and look what you got today. And I say that to you young kids, every one of you, that you need to be patient with what God wants to do in your life, and you need to realize that God will bring the right person and His time into your life. When you step outside that, you're going to get the wrong situation, and the devil would just love to, uh, to accomplish that in your life. Then the second thing, work together within your family. Understand, you know, when we came through the child thing, I gave you some, some homework, so to speak, how that you can, on a weekly basis, sit down and, and communicate the great truths, to work together within your family. You know, the third thing is to train uh, those kids to work uh, with you. Bring them into what you're doing. Allow them to see what God is doing in your life. And then just bring them automatically along with that. The fifth thing would be to, uh, excuse me, the fourth thing would be to establish uh, your life and your family as God's heritage. Allowing your children to know the overall game plan. That, yeah, they're my daughter, they're my son, they're my, they're my children, but they're also God's heritage. There's a bigger picture here. There's more to the Christian life than getting married and finding a good wife or a good husband and having children. You are the key to the continuation of the good work that God started in you, but it has to come through your family. And then the fifth thing, let me help you with that. You know what? It comes down to the, uh, the church, church and parenting have to go together. There will be things that you face, things that you don't understand, things that you come up against, challenges, that why make the wrong choice? Why make the bad decision? Why just try to hand? If you're not sure, then you find out how to deal with it. And the reason for that is because with the Word of God together, there's nothing that we can't do with it. There's no problem we can't solve. There's no issue that we can't fix. It's only when we refuse to use God's tools do, do we fail uh, in, in what we attempt to do. We fail to use the Bible. We fail to use uh, the church. We fail to, use, to utilize the pastor to help figure it all out and put it all together. Now today, Based on what I just said and where we have been, we want to kind of move on today. And what we want to do today is to tie the last two or three times that we were together uh, and put it all in a little package. We want, to, we, we, want to, we want to understand the concept of the father and the mother greatly rejoicing over a child who in life has made and learned to make good, wise choices. That they've come to the point where they don't make bad choices anymore. And the context of all of this will be a child who has God's wisdom to make his mother and uh, her heart to be joyful because they're watching the investment in their life of where they're going. And now, because they've done their work understanding the concept of God's family, now we're, we're moving along and we're seeing it actually happen. Let's read today Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26 through, through 28. It says this, My son... Give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increases the transgression among men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. 
We love you. We ask you, Father, to help us to put together the Word of God in our lives, to give us what we need. We ask you now, Father, to open up our hearts, open up the Word of God, and give us all the things that we need today to accomplish the purpose of God and to a challenging uh, of raising our children as God's heritage and seeing the fruit and the joy and the rejoicing because we understand the overall plan of God. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. As sake we ask it. Amen. Now let's look at verse 26 here. And we're just going to kind of take these verses. I know, you know, <coughs> verse 26 says, My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. Now when you just read that, it doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like there's really a lot there that we could spend an hour talking about. But I guarantee you, this is an incredible verse, and it is loaded uh, with what we need to look at today. And of course, uh, he says there, starting out, My son, give me thine heart. You know, back in, uh, back in the 1960s and the 70s, we, uh, we had, uh, and this is long before most of you were born, uh, we, we had the war in Vietnam. And the war in Vietnam was a tragic war. Uh, some 25,000 of young American boys lost their lives. It was a war that was a very confusing war to most people. America experienced her first defeat in all of the history of all the wars that she fought. We won the Civil War, we fought the World War I, the Spanish, the Mexican War. We went through all of those things. World War II was a stunning victory. We defeated the Germans in, in, in Europe and the Japanese in, in, uh, uh, in, in, the, in Japan, and it was an absolutely incredible victory. But then what happened was we, Korea came along, and we neither won nor lost Korea. It was a stalemate. We never got a victory there. Then a little bit time after that, the Vietnam War came along, and we got our rear ends kicked. We lost the Vietnam War. We spent 25,000 young men's lives, never accomplished anything, and the moment we left, all that we tried to stand for and all that we tried to do collapsed within 20 minutes. And uh, today, Saigon, which was the base there for the American Warriors, Ho Chi Minh City, completely went communism. Everything fell apart. And it was a war that actually we probably could have won in six months. It was a war that could have been very easily won. But every time politicians get in it, every time there is a hidden agenda that keeps the thing going, it was a war where nobody wanted to win it and nobody wanted to fight in it. And it was a very tragic time for America. And the loss of life of young men uh, was incredible. There's probably not a town in this country that didn't lose somebody or multiple young men uh, to that. Now we're in a war in the Middle East. It started in the 90s when we invaded Kuwait and, and took down Saddam Hussein and all of that and uh, in Baghdad. And you know what? We've been in that war ever since. And we'll never get out of that war. There'll be no end to that war. America has never learned the lessons that the war we're in now there's no end to because we're not fighting a nation. And as much as people don't want to hear it, they don't want to listen to it, they don't want to believe it, we're fighting a religion. And it ain't going away. And if Jesus comes back or whenever he does come back, if it lasts another 100 years, 200 years, we will still be fighting that war and no one will win it. It's incredible. One of the most incredible studies that you'll ever take through history 
is to study that war in Vietnam. The war that nobody wanted to fight in and the war that nobody really wanted to win it. You see, after World War II, we see the rise of Russia. And we enter in what is commonly called the Cold War. The Cold War lasts from about 1947, 48, somewhere in there, probably maybe even 46, all the way up to the collapse of the Russian uh, Empire under the President Reagan in the 80s. It was called the Cold War because it wasn't a hot war. We weren't fighting on battlefields. It was a war of two nations trying to offset the other one without actually going to war. We got the atomic bomb in 1945. The Russians got it shortly thereafter. That was supposed to be the great deterrent. Nobody wanted to use the atomic atomic bombs because they knew the total destruction. They sent five over to us. We sent ten back to them. And before you know it, the whole world, you know, is a wasteland. And that was supposed to be the deterrent. And it's been the chip on the table. This is why we don't want North Korea to get nuclear weapons or Iraq or Iran. Because they will use it because they don't understand the concept. But it was a war that was a cold war. And America took one position and Russia took another. Now you're going to find from 1945 to 1980 that the world, three quarters of the world falls under communism. You're going to find that they move into China after World War II. They move into North Korea after World War II. They take over 95% of Europe. All of those countries over there are now, or were at that time, communist. When the World War II ended and the Russians got it, they were allowed to get into Berlin. It split Berlin into four sections. And they had the, they had the west side, we had the east, uh, they had the east side, we had the west side. 99% of South America went communist. Over there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 5, where it talks about the rise of the great bear, that prophetically is a picture of the Russia, and it says, arise and devour much flesh. And that means that during that time period that I just gave you, three-quarters of the world got devoured by communism. Well, America tried to counter that, and of course, she went into Vietnam. China, Vietnam, and Korea were all held by Europeans before World War II. When the Japanese came in, kicked out the Europeans, the Japanese had those nations, and after World War II, uh, when the Japanese were booted out, the Europeans tried to come back in, and they didn't want them. And communism was on its way, and it spread into those nations, and that's why we have the conflicts. And in 19... You know, 1960 up to about 1973, 74, with the war in Vietnam, America tried to counter the Cold War. America put together a plan to build free democracies around the world. And the way she had to do that was to defeat communism. So we got into, we got into Korea. Right after World War II. Then we got into Vietnam. The French was in there. They couldn't do it, so then America got into it. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a term that was born during this time. And the term was that uh, America was wanted to build little Americas all around the world. And they thought, actually, if they did that, that, that communism would never get a foothold because who wouldn't want to live in a free democracy versus the chokehold of communism? It sounds good. 
So America came up with the idea that if you wanted to get these nations not to go communism and you wanted to get the people on your side, they coined the phrase, the winning of hearts and minds. That's the phrase that they had. Win the people's hearts toward democracy and the country will follow. During Vietnam, a guy by the name of General Harkins, he was one of the leading generals in the early part, and he would give his troops pep rallies of why we were fighting in Vietnam and why we should fight to win and all these things, though nobody ever won it. And he, his analogy was one of the goofiest analogies that I've ever heard in my life. I guess in a day it made sense with what they were trying to do. And he says, why are we fighting in, in Vietnam? Why are we putting our lives on the line to help these people that we don't ever know? Because inside every Vietnamese is an American trying to break out. So we were going to defeat communism by unlocking the American dream that which was in everybody in Vietnam. What a disaster. What a failure it was. What an absolute. So we launched a program through the CIA and military to win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. And it was a tragedy. It was a disaster. It was the, really the main reason we lost in Vietnam. America had a superiority mindset that American culture, American society, capitalism as we know it, free democracy, was the greatest thing on this planet. And we would solve all the world's problems if we just everybody like America. Little did they know that the book of Ecclesiastes says, fundamentally, on the paper it may look different, living in each country it may look different, but from the Bible standpoint, in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is no difference between communism and capitalism, as far as God's concerned. You don't bring peace and solve man's problems by giving him everything he wants. Truth of the matter is, just as a side note, there'll be a few side notes today, under that oppressive reign of communism in those communism countries and all the freedoms that we have in America during the same time, Christianity flourished unbelievably under the Iron Curtain more than it did here. You know why? Because when you give God's people everything they want, you lose God's people. When God's people are under the person, see, you got up this morning and maybe you decided to come to church and maybe you didn't. Maybe you decide to go to Bible study or maybe you don't. It's no big deal to you because you got it all. But let me tell you something. When you decide in a communist country you're going to go up to church, go to church that morning, you probably got an 8 out of 10 chance you're going to be put in, a, in, in prison and tortured and probably killed. It eliminates the phony Christians. And there's nothing wrong with a good, strong persecution. That's what, that's what made the book of Acts in the early church such a powerful instrument of God. And we as American Christians, we have so much, we have everything. Oh, we just don't like persecution. We don't like the bad times. Why, we're so, we so disdain it and hate it that we've come up with a theology that if anything bad happens in your life, it's of the devil. And if everything good happens in your life, it's of God. I can probably say this just on an everyday, without you screwing your life up, just going through the course of life, probably the good things in your life come from the devil and the bad things in your life will come from God. Amen. 
But it was that mindset, that superior mindset that America is going to win the hearts and minds of all these people and then they'll come and they'll follow and they'll become little Americans. Learning the lessons from history that will apply into the lessons of your life and my life to this very day of who's going to win your heart and mind. Because that's really the issue today. If God gets your heart, your mind will follow. And the reason why you're not following him today is because he doesn't have your heart. At the end of World War II, Europe was devastated, Japan was devastated, China was devastated. All of those countries where the Japanese Empire had touched was in ruin. And one of the great principles about Christianity is that when some catastrophe happens in somebody's life or a country, that is the time that people now are open to the gospel. And they put General Douglas MacArthur as the, as the man who was going to be challenged with rebuilding Japan. And they ask him, they ask him, President Truman says, what do you need to rebuild Japan? You know what he said? He said, send me 10,000 missionaries. You know what America sent him? Benny Goodman. Rock and roll, Coca-Cola, baseball, hot dogs. That's what we sent them instead of what they really needed. And we thought even back then that if we just made them a little America and brought our culture over, give them baseball, give them football, give them hot dogs, give them Coke, give them, give them rock and roll, give them all of those things, that that would just when their hearts and their minds would follow. And I'll be honest with you today, you see the same mindset in Christianity with modern-day missions. As far as I am concerned, modern-day missions has fallen on its face. The men and women we turn out to be missionaries today, for the most part, have no clue of anything historical uh, about missions from the Bible. Uh, the, the idea in American Christianity is just like the idea that we had back in the times of the, uh, the Cold War, where America had a mindset of superiority. Christianity in America today has the mindset of superiority. We think that our brand of Christianity in America is the only brand. So when we send a missionary to Mexico, Latin America, wherever the case may be, one of the first things he does is try to get rid of their culture, and make them little Americans. He won't become one with the people. The missionaries down there will have a little missionary compound that is a, a, away from the people. They'll have an American flag on the pole. They'll wear the little American lapel pins. They'll celebrate Thanksgiving. They'll celebrate all the American holidays, and they actually think that they can go in and be one with those people maintaining their own, and bring that culture and build in them what we have in America. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster. And the whole idea of winning hearts and minds was completely 
messed up because it only applies to the Bible. We as God's people, we don't build nations. We as God's people, we don't build churches. We got the idea from that movie, you know, A Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. So we build great buildings, great churches, great Ephesus, great big buildings with everything they want, and sit back, and yes, the people come. But that's not a church. You don't build buildings anymore and win hearts and minds any more than you do building a nation. You build hearts and minds by building families one family at a time. And the Bible teaches that the key to man following God and surrendering his life to him and giving him his heart will be his heart attitude toward God. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The Bible says that Luke chapter 10, verse 27, that we're to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. And it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, that where your heart is, that's where your treasure is this morning. We really try to make being a Christian hard, don't we? We work 24-7 trying to complicate it all so we don't have to see how simple loving God really is. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 says that you and I are what we think about. And Philippians chapter 3, 2, verse 5 says that we are to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something. When God gets your mind, he'll get your heart. Hearts and minds. It's not about nation building. It's not about church building. It's about you getting God's mind and getting God's heart, and then you follow him. So let's look at these verses today. Now, in verse 26, there are three things I want to look at. First of all, I want you to realize that this verse, doctrinally, obviously, is the nation of Israel. Historically, as we know, it's Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and inspirationally, it'll be me and you. Now, these verses are, are loaded, and they are a goldmine of truth on how to keep your relationship with God on track uh, once you finally get it. Now, the second thing here, I want, to drench in, I want to draw your attention to, he says, my son. And I want to talk about how you keep your fellowship in place, how you keep your fellowship on track in the midst of the most tragic time in church history. I want to talk to you out of this section about how do you walk in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another when you live in a world of darkness. And some of you are like somebody walking through a dark woods with a flashlight. As long as you got the flashlight, you're doing okay. But you know what? Your battery's going, that flashlight, now you're subject to the darkness of the woods and you're going to get lost and you're going to get messed up. And you know what some of you did? You had the flashlight of the Word of God in your life and your batteries ran out. Oh, you're here this morning, but you know and I know you're as far away from God as you can hope to be. There was a time when you were involved here, you did things here, and now your batteries are dead. Now, you don't mind because with who you're with, you like the darkness. I know how it works. 
This verse will define our fellowship. Walking in the light as he is in the light. Now let's look at the second aspect. My son, that's the first one. Give me thine heart. Now I want you to understand something in this second section. God will not come down and make you love him. He will not come down and just put in your mind and your brain and your heart that you're going to love him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, talks, and everybody gets it wrong, talks about it, how that you and I are to work out our salvation. And you get the idiot that says, well, see, the Bible teaches salvation of work. That's not what it's saying. It's saying after you're saved, you've got to work it out with him and come to the place in your life. Are you going to give him your heart or are you going to keep it yourself? Are you going to give him half of it and give half of it to somebody else? He wants you and me of our own free will to choose only him and throw everything else out of your life. You see, what the Bible, my mom asked me one time when I started getting in the Bible, and my mom, she didn't really understand a lot about the Bible, and I think she was confused about a lot of it. And she said one time, she says, she says, how, how, how do you, in the Bible, how do you get past all of the terrible things that are in the Bible? See, she was thinking that because it's the Bible, we always have the good things. And she says, how do you, how do, what, why does the Bible have all of these terrible bad things like homosexuality, which isn't bad anymore, but back in the day it was. Why does the Bible have all of these terrible things in there that he just lays out so graphically? And I, and I, and I appreciated that question, and I was pretty young in the Lord, but I knew the answer to it. I said, Mom, it's because the Bible will show you both roads of life. The Bible will show you the road of sin and life that you want to go down, if that's the road you want to go down. The, road will sh- the, road, the Bible will show you the road of deception. It'll show you the road of playing two e- one end against the other. It'll show you the end result of a life without God clearly and plainly. And then it will show you the road with a life with God. You know why he does that? Because you've got to choose. I can't choose it for you. I think sometimes you up here, I'm preaching, you think I'm trying to force you to do something. I'd force you to do anything. i got enough problem myself worried about forcing you. No, no, no. You have to decide for yourself. And many of God's people, at one point in their life, they started out, and then they got a better deal. He wants you and me of our own free will to choose only Him. And any relationship with God will start and stay in your heart attitude about Him and His Word. And you want to remember this. Your heart attitude will all be based on how you accept truth. I, 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 all my life, almost 50 years now, I've given nothing but truth. I put out truth time and time and time again. And there will always be people who will get upset with the truth. I, I, I don't care where you go. I don't care what ministry you get in. I don't care if you go build a church in in Kansas. I don't care if you go build a church in Florida. I don't care if you go minister wherever you go. When you start preaching truth, you're going to find people don't like you because you preach the truth. And sometimes it seems like it's personal, but it's really not. You know, it it doesn't matter. It's one of the first things you want to learn about getting into the ministry. Not everybody you're going to disciple is going to be happy with you. 
Not every place you go to minister, you're going to, and you'll see that tonight down at the mission. Those guys are just there because they want to get out of the heat and want to get a meal. You're an annoyance to them. And you will find, honestly, some guys there that love the Lord. But you'll find the majority of them don't. And it's a situation where you've got to go in knowing that, or when they start heckling you, you take it personal. Or when somebody comes up and says something to you, you take it personal. Learn this now, right now, before you go any farther into ministry. When you preach truth, no matter where you go, there were people that don't like it. I told you a couple of weeks ago, just I told you a couple of weeks ago about the miracle of Lincoln, Nebraska, and what God is doing up there. And Bob and his son-in-law was up there and preaching, and the people with him yesterday had a great time. And, and we look at that, and, we, and it's an absolute miracle of God. But I am not under any illusion that everybody likes us up there. Because truth is always going to find opposition. Uh, and you're going to find it wherever you go. What do you do? Quit? No, you focus on the people who love truth. Amen. You focus on the people who will change about them, their families, whatever they got to change to bring it in line with God's heart. Because the heart of God depends on your acceptance of truth. And you're no different than me. You think I like everything in the Bible? And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter whether I like it or not, it's still the Bible. Amen. And whether I like it or don't like it is immaterial, we got to do what it says. If you want to go down the right road. I, I watched again the other day, I, I taped it and didn't get to watch it, the royal wedding over there. And I got to analyze it a little better this time. And that guy from Chicago that did the ceremony and all that, I must have missed it the first time because I was in a hurry and just catching pieces of it. But he laid this thing out and he says, the only way, the only way we're going to change anything in life, and he went through all of the things, you know, that are problems and all those, and he says, the only way we're ever going to choose, change everything in life, there's only one way to do it, it's through love. And I listened and I thought to myself, that is so typical of where Christianity is today. I want to tell you something. The only way you're going to change whatever's wrong in this world is by truth, Amen. not by love. But that's where we're at today. The Word of God is the only book that when you start reading it, it starts reading you. And it's aimed at your heart. I learned that years ago, and so I, when I preach, my preaching is aimed at your heart, not your head. I don't put you under a set of rules. I don't, I don't put you under a legalistic concept. I, I, I follow uh, the, the clear presentation of the Word of God that the Word of God goes after your heart. When we go to camp here in a month or so, when I preach to those kids, I'm going after their hearts. That's where I'm going after because if you get, if God gets your heart, your mind will follow. Hearts and minds. And where Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that your heart is deceitful, my heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And the imagination of our heart is only evil. And he asks, who can know it? God can know it. And I'll tell you something else, you can know it too if you embrace the truth.
So when we got saved, see how simple this is? We like to make the Christian life complicated. Well, you don't understand my problem. Well, you don't, you don't really understand where we're coming from. No, the problem is I understand it better than you do. You just don't want the truth about it. So you live under that rock called, you don't understand my issues. You live under the protection and the camouflage net of, well, they just don't understand. He just doesn't understand. She doesn't understand. They just don't. They, they don't. No, no, that's the problem. We do understand. We understand that it isn't about your feelings. It isn't about your emotions. It isn't about even what you think. It's about God's truth. And the issues of life has to line up to truth or it doesn't change. When you got saved, you know what happened? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You know what happened the day you got saved, or was supposed to happen? You were supposed to get a new heart. Instantaneously. I mean in a split millisecond. New creature in Christ Jesus, believe it or not, old things are passed away. All things become new. You got a new heart. And when you got a new heart, oh, hey, man, the Bible says that you got a new song in your mouth. Even praise unto our God, many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. You got a new name. I got a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. You got a new name. You got a new nature, Romans chapter 7. You got a new spirit that came into you. You got new Jerusalem now that is the mother of us all in the place that our affection should be when it's set above. And, and, and you got a new heart. You know what that new heart should have done for you? I'm not sure why it didn't. I shudder to think why it didn't. But that new heart should have given you an idea to have new friends. That new heart should have came with a guarantee that you were going to have a new walk. That new heart should have absolutely guaranteed that you were going to go to new places and stay away from the old places. A changed heart. Listen to me. A changed heart will always have as the evidence your changed life. It ain't complicated. You have to answer the question in your life why you claim to have salvation, why you claim to have a changed heart and it belongs to Him and you haven't changed one thing about your life and you still go, do, drink, smoke, do all the things you used to do before. And yet you want to tell me that you have a new heart that you have the heart of God. And you get mad at me when I laugh at you. Now the third thing here, he says, my son, that was number one, give me thine heart, that is your own free choice. And then he says the third thing, and let thine eyes observe my ways. Hey, listen. When a man or a woman's heart is at peace and home with God, the eyes, the mouth, the ears will take care of themselves. When a man's heart, a woman's heart is in the world or halfway 
and he's listening to his or her flesh, the eyes, the mouth, the ears will become a sounding board for the world. And every despicable thing in the world since Cain first lifted up his hand to kill Abel in Genesis chapter 4. The real student of the Bible will see that in the Ten Commandments, that the first commandment and the last commandment both deal with the attitude of your heart, relationships. And don't miss this. In Matthew chapter 20, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 39, he takes the Ten Commandments and he brings them down to just two. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, mind, soul, da 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 and the second one is, and thy neighbor as thyself. And if you're paying attention, he says that you would love the Lord thy God with all of your heart. But he doesn't say anything about that when he talks about the neighbor. You know why? Because if God's got your heart, your love toward your neighbor will take care of itself. That's the principle. Wow. Pays to read the Bible sometimes. And the key in that verse is observing my ways. I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about being observant. Learning to observe what works and what doesn't work. Most of my Christian life has been spent observing. I learned by observing. I heard what people said, and then I watched based on what they said, what they did, to see if it worked out for them. And when you observe somebody, you know what you learn? When you observe things in life, you observe and you see what works and what doesn't work, and then you learn what to stay away from. And I want to tell you something, if God ever gets your heart, if there ever comes a time in your life when God gets your heart, He'll get all of you. And there'll be nothing left for the world to have. I'm not saying you'll be perfect. I'm not saying you won't make mistakes. I'm telling you, when God gets your heart, really gets your heart, there's no place left for the world. It's plain and simple. In fact, it's too plain and simple. The reason why a child of God today will not totally commit themselves to God and they will to the world or stay halfway in it is the fact that they don't have his heart he doesn't have theirs. And you can make all the excuses you want. You can throw out every reason that you can find to justify your life the way you are. But at the end of the day, 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, If any man love God, the same is known of him. True love always identifies itself with the object, and there are certain things that go along with loving somebody. And just as it says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. It doesn't say this, but it's true. If any man doesn't love God, it's known too. I hear a lot of, all the time about the issue of the King James Bible, you know, uh, well, why you believe the King James about this and doing that. And you know what? If God really has your heart, you'll absolutely have no issue with the King James Bible being the Word of God. Amen. You won't. Amen. Because you'll have to agree and have to come to the place that that, heart, that book is God's heart. When you absolutely understand and God has your heart, you won't have a problem with principles or doctrines that will help you ensure that you stay in fellowship with Him. Amen. That you'll walk in the light as He is in the light. Boy, there's a powerful little as. Because that book is His heart. That book is His mind. 
And what you do then is you bring what you think, what you believe, who you are in line with him and who he is. And that's foreign today. John 14, 23 says, if any man love me, do you love him? If any man love me, do you love him? If any man love me, he'll keep my words. He didn't say if any man love me, he'll keep the originals. He didn't say if any man love me, he'll keep my thoughts. He didn't say if any man loved me, he'll keep the message. He said if any man loved me, he will keep my W-O-R-D-S, his word. And there's only two questions today. One, do you have them? And two, do you love them? And if you love them, you'll keep them. Not saying they won't make some mistakes. I won't say you won't fall in life. What I'm saying is this. You won't get into the lifestyle where you have one foot into the world and one in foot with God, and you play games with God and everybody else. The reason why people don't stay in this church very long and doesn't do what's right, because they don't get away with a lot of it. My preaching is aimed at your heart. Amen. I could pick every subject in the world, and somebody could be, out of fellowship with God and just be fine coming to this church. I could preach on the world situation. I could preach on this church or that. I could preach on, on this. I could preach on that. But when you start to preach to people's hearts, it gets real, real quick. That Holy Spirit of God walks up and down these aisles and walks over here, walks down between those seats. And suddenly, for an hour and 15, 20 minutes, you are confronted with who you really are. And a lot of people, it's just easier to find a church where you can go and do whatever you want to do, and it's okay. I need you here. We need people here. You can do whatever you want to do. I, I got to have a crowd. Well, you got one. Good one, too. Now, look at verse 27 and 28. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey and increases the transgression among men. Now, this strange woman who uh, is a whorish woman, we know now from our time in Proverbs, she is one of the sub-themes of the book of Proverbs, along with the evil man. In fact, they're portrayed in Proverbs and throughout the Bible as a husband and wife. Inspirationally, obviously, it's any whorish, whorish woman. Historically, it'll be Baal worship, like we talked about Thursday night, uh, uh, to the nation of Israel, found in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Doctrinally, it'll be any false religion or any political system, but which the devil runs the world through the Roman Catholic Church. In the Bible, the two great uh, pictures of this is in 1 Kings 18, Ahab and Jezebel, husband and wife. That will be the definitive passage on it. When you go over to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, she's called the mother of harlots. That's a whore. And of course, we know Revelation 17 and 18 paints her as the Roman Catholic Church. No question about that. Now, I said all that to say this. In all three cases, all three of these applications represent somebody who will beguile you and then will destroy you. And yet at the same time, let's, let's look at it, all three Come into your life by catching your eye. Pleasant to look at. We call it eye candy. Bible calls it the lust of the eyes. Covetousness. Seeing what you don't have and then going after it. 
or what you think you can't live without, or what you think you really will make you happy. Bible says when Satan beguiled Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says it was based on what she saw. It says in verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, Sin started the fall of mankind that put the world into, into the lake of fire, if it wouldn't have been for Christ, started with somebody looking at something, thinking it was really good and pleasant and nice when it wasn't. So first and foremost, this, you know, when I... <clears throat> Years ago, I worked at the Hoover Company, uh, which made vacuum cleaners, washing machines, stuff like that. I never forgot this. <clears throat> I lost my job about 1973. Uh, the recession hit, <clears throat> and they laid everybody off. And I didn't have a job. My brother-in-law, who ran a grocery store, family grocery store, called Laverne's Market, um, he took me in and said, hey, uh, I want you to come and work for me we're family, and, you know, I want to make you a, 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 the produce manager. Well, I, that was fine. I mean, I, you know, I needed a job, and you paid me a decent deal. But I knew nothing about produce. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. And, and so he says, well, I'm going to send you to a seminar that a guy teaches on produce, selling produce. And I've heard a lot of seminars, but never one on fruits and vegetables. But he's the boss. <laughs> I drove down to Pittsburgh at the Marriott that morning, and I met this guy. His name was Fred something. I can't remember. I'm sure he's dead now. And he put on one of the greatest, most unbelievable presentations of how to sell produce, fruit to people. And you know what he said? And it was so true. And I never really looked at it till I went back after I took the seminar. He said, people buy fruit by how pretty it looks. Did you ever go to a produce and, the, it, and, the, and they got those big, beautiful cases and then there's mirrors in the back that reflects the fruit? He showed me the false things that they put in the floor and st- or in the, in the rack. So instead of having to put five boxes of fruit out that'll go bad and, and, and to make it look big, is you put these false things in and then you put just a little bit and it fills it up like you got, you got 28 pieces of fruit. It looks like you got 6,000 in there. And he showed pictures of some of the grand places where he says when a woman, woman walks, has her shopping cart, when she comes around the corner and she sees that long aisle of produce with the greens and the oranges and the reds and the purples and this and that, all of that stuff, she just loses it. <laughs> She'll buy stuff that she doesn't even need. She says it's the most beautiful thing you ever saw in your life. And she'd come around that corner, and then she says, then you wet it down so it sparkles in the light. And she comes around that corner, and she sees the cantaloupes and the apples and the oranges and the rhubarb, and and you match the colors. You know, you just, and she walks around there, and it just catches her eye. She'll go back and get another sharpening cart just for the produce. So I tried it. We had a little store, but I had a whole 
probably about from that wall there down to the sound booth, uh, and that was my produce section. Maybe not quite that long. Boy, I did it up. I had these little old ladies coming in, and they're saying, wow, this really looks nice. This is beautiful. You have such fruit. I mean, you were just, you were just, this is wonderful. And I said, well, thank you very much. Would you buy something instead of just walking around the store, you know? And it was incredible. I found out that I could get old lettuce that was stale and put it out. They still buy it. I didn't want any shrinkage. I was small enough already. And I, I, I put it into the Bible. I'd get that old dead lettuce and all that stuff, you know, and I, I'd be putting it on Monday morning under cold water, and I'd be singing, Revive us again. You know? I'd be trimming lettuce. Let us pray. That was great. And I learned that they bought because what I look at. And you know what? That's the concept here. That, that's what it does. That's it. The world system. It looks great, doesn't it? Man, everything you see out there, everything. The world glitters and gleams and shines and sparkles and, 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 and fireworks go off and fire comes up and smoke. Oh, that was that church. It just, it just looks so spectacular and you see it and you say, I, oh, that will make my life better. It never shows you the drug abuse, the alcohol, and all the stuff that goes with it. You look at world religions. Walk into those churches. Well, I've been in Europe before. Some of those cathedrals were built back in the 1200s. And when you walk in there, people whisper. Because God's here. It's almost irreverent to talk, say, hey, how are you doing? You want to go eat after? Shh. It's a holy place. <laughs> Years ago, Mel Shabak and I were in, 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 in Germany someplace. When a, we were going with a bunch of people. We're in this cathedral. Well, we split off from everybody. We wanted to find what was really going on in that place. We're down in the basement. There's this big hole dug down here. And we're thinking it leads to the catacombs. We want to go through the catacombs. But it had this big steel thing on it, big steel plate, like they put over the road, you know, when you, when you got a hole. And so him and I are lifting it up, you know. And I, we don't know what, who's going to, because we can't, one of us can't hold it. We need somebody else. And we're not deciding how we're going to, we're looking for something to prop it up with. And we were going to get down in that hole. If we'd have got down there and the fella, we'd still be down there. We would have become part of the catacombs. And we're holding it up that way, you know, but up here. And all of a sudden, Mel says, there's somebody coming, and he lets go. <laughs> well, I know it wasn't going to crush me, so I let go. That thing came down. It sounded like an atomic bomb went off in that church. Smoke came up, was rolling up the stairs from the dirt, you know. Mel and I are laughing so hard. We're, we're, we got out this way and went up there, and, we're, and here comes the priests and the nuns and the monks and everybody, you know, and we're up there. I don't know. Something really banged downstairs. I don't know what it is. You guys better get down there and check it out. <laughs> when you walk into those places, it's almost like God's here. The big edifices today, you know, they're designed to catch your eye. Everything you need is here. We got a restaurant. We got a Starbucks. We got McDonald's. We got a playground. We, we got all that. 
They got a snack bar out there on Thursday night. We got a coffee pot back there on Thursday night. We just don't have a Starbucks sign. Yeah, you're laughing, but you'll pay $4 for one of those. You can have ours free. The only hot dog you get at those places free is the guy preaching. And you walk in there, wow, now this is a church. If you build it, they'll come. We got, we got, we got a restaurant, we got a gymnasium, we got racquetball courts, we got a, we got a workout place, we got, we got a coffee spot, we got everything. We got everything here but the Bible. And that don't seem to bother anybody today. But it looks great. All of these things, doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally, catch your eye. See a hooker walk down the street there, boy, and she's got a short miniskirt on, and she's got her hair fixed and all this stuff, and you're saying, wow, she really looks, that's what I'm talking about. She really looks hot. (laughs) On the outside, she's got AIDS, herpes, Gonorrhea, that's not a city next to Guatemala. That's a disease on the inside. But it looks good, doesn't it? And you get caught up in it because she catches your eye. And you see that and you say, wow, that's really what life is. I, I'm telling you, man. You need to observe. You need to see what is real and what isn't, what works and what doesn't. Oh, you laugh at me about that, and, and, but look at Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6. Here it is. This is more graphic than what I just said. For at the window of my house I looked through the, my casement. Now this is God speaking. A great study is the window of the house and the casement. We don't have time. And behold, the simple ones, I discerned among the youth, a young man, void of understanding. Here he is, walking down the street. So dumb he doesn't suspect anything. There she is. Golly! Verse 8, passing through the street near her corner. And he went away to her house. In the twilight, in the evening of the black and dark night. By the way, that's the church age for those of you that can't put it together. And behold, there met him a woman with the attar of a harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud. She's stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait in every corner. So she caught him. She kissed him on the mouth. Hard. (laughs) And with an imprudent face. Now that's a good word, imprudent. You know what imprudent means? You were so... I've waited for you all my life. I've been standing on a street corner for 75 years and finally you've come along. (laughs) And he says, Oh, I believe it. Like... No, not my big athlete I met on the internet, and he's some bozo looks like he just walked out of a turnip truck. 
With an imprudent face, she said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day I paid my vow. She's religious, man. She's religious. Therefore I came forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with caperings of tapestry and carved works out of the fine linen of Egypt. Egypt, Egypt, type of the world. I have perfumed my bed with mirth, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning, second coming of Christ. Let us solace ourselves with loves. Looks good, see? It looks good when you're stupid and don't have any understanding of it. Verse 27 and 28 says, she's a deep ditch (laughs) and a narrow pit. Now, let me just tell you something. We know what it is. It can be somebody. It can be most generally what we're preaching at. It can be the world system or the religious system. Plain preaching. Once you fall into the world of sin and the world of false religion, it's hard to get out of it. Ditches in the Bible are not a good thing. They're on each side of the road of life. And just like driving your car, you never get where you're going when you get off into the ditch. When you get false and bad teaching of the world, or you get hooked up to the world, this is where you wind up, in the ditch of life. The ditch in the Bible are about going through life with the wrong heart attitude, and you wind up in the ditch. Now, let me say this to you. So, there's no misunderstanding. I can hear it now. You don't understand my problem. You don't understand. Let me give you a good verse that will help you. Probably not, but it's in my text, so I got to give it to you anyhow. (laughs) Psalm 715. He made a pit and digged it and fell into the ditch that he made. Don't tell me your excuses. That verse says, you dug the ditch you fell into. Nobody dug it for you. You walked up in life. You walked up in this. You went to church and you saw it. You heard it. You saw this. You said, boy, this will be good. And then you said, where's my shovel? And here you are 10, 15, 20 years later. You're in a ditch ditch so deep you'll never get out. And Matthew 15, 14 says, talking about getting bad teaching and bad doctrine or getting into the world system, it says, let them alone. They be blind, leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, they both fall in the ditch. There's your churches. Those are the churches you go to and invest your life in and don't give you the truth of the Word of God. There's the world system for you. The blind leading the blind, and you both wind up in the same ditch that you dug This is why, plain, simple, it's not hard, it's not complicated. This is why so many of God's people try so hard to get back to God and they just can't ever get there. You dug the ditch too deep. Hey, I've had people in my ministry who I love greatly. And I've watched them for 10, 20, 30 years, sometimes since they were born. And I've watched them never be able to get to the place where they just give God everything. They got their ditch dug so deep that every time they try, and they'll come around. They'll come around about every three or four years. 
Now, you know, they'll come around and they'll say, I'm sorry, you know, this or that, and I did this, I screwed up here. I'll take them back and say, hey, come on in and get this. And they'll do fine for a while, and then you don't start to see them again, and then you see them over here or with this person or with that situation, and you try to tell them. And now where they were listening to their pastor, now you're their enemy. And pretty soon you don't see them. You know what you see? You just see the dirt coming out of the ditch. Ditches over their head. And they'll, they'll, they'll go there for a while, then they'll try to crawl back out. They'll come out for a little bit, and then they'll go right back into another ditch. Their whole life is just falling back into the ditch that they dug. And the bottom line is, they will not come to the place in their life where they ever give God their whole heart. They'll come back to church, they'll come for a while, they'll get involved in this, they'll get involved in that, they'll do that, and then suddenly, you don't see them anymore. They're gone, they're out now, or they're, they're in the mode where they're sporadic now, and pretty soon, they're going to be right back with him, right back with her, right back someplace, and now something else is going to take the place of once you once loved here. Don't tell me. I'll tell you one time you're headed for trouble, you blow me off, Welcome to your ditch. You dig it too deep. You'll never get out. You crawl out for a while, and then you're, you get halfway out, and then the old world grabs your legs and pulls you right back down again. And it all comes down to where your heart's at. Where your heart really is. How, if you've got a changed heart, how do you go against the church God put you in? You got a changed heart. This isn't just me, any church. But if you got a changed heart, how do you go against the very God God gave you, who once in your life you listened to and wanted to follow? Now you just got a better deal, sweetheart. Now you're listening to Him. Digging your way out can be tough. And when, and, and when you get into the world ditches or the religious ditches and you're an unsaved person, that ditch leads to a pit, the bottomless pit, the lake of fire. Oh, I told you the verse was loaded. Look at verse 28. She also lieth in wait as for a prey. And increases the transgression among men. Boy, that's a loaded verse too. Only a study of history can reveal how patient false religions are to lie in wait to strike at you. Or how the world system is. The devil in Job chapter 40 through chapter 41, Isaiah chapter 27, and other places is called a serpent. The Bible says he will not conceal his parts, power is coming proportion or the face of his garments. And the devil, like a serpent, camouflages himself. Why, you can walk through the woods and not even see a rattlesnake is right there until you hear the rattle, or a copperhead. They blend right in. When a snake hunts at night, he may not move ten feet from his den. He just stays motionless all night. He's patient, waiting for prey to come by him, and he'll grab him. Hey, once your heart leaves God's word, 
Once your heart leaves God's heart and you give it to somebody else, you can no longer see what's all around you. Now you have no spiritual discernment. The devil will camo everything around you to make it look like it's good and wonderful and beautiful and that you can't live without it. Your preacher, your church, your family will, uh, will, will try to talk to you about it and try to show it. You'll just get an attitude. You know why? Because you don't have his heart anymore. And the world, religion, the devil just patiently waits and counting on you being impatient. The issue with God's people is number one issue with God's people is they won't wait on God's timing for anything. Some of you kids won't wait to get the right husband. You'll just have to make it happen because you just can't live without one. And boy, you'll get a good one. You won't wait on God to learn the Bible the way God wants you to learn it. You won't wait on God to train your children the right way. Now, now their life, their family, the very plan that God had for them is in a ditch. And as a parent, I'm going to tell you, the single most important aspect of life to teach your child is patience. I, I, I honestly, I don't know, I've seen this all my ministry. I don't understand what some of God's people, what's wrong with them. Your daughter's 16 and you let her dress like she's 25. I don't get that. She'll be 25 quick enough. You don't need to look like you're 25 when you don't have the emotional stability to be 25. I, I, I've watched them. I, I, I've watched them just, just put their kids on a silver platter and carry them to the world. They won't wait for the right guy. They'll say, well, you know what? I, I, I'm getting old. I'm 17 years old. And you know, I'm almost going to be an old maid. They won't just let God be God in his timing. And in the truth, I'm just telling you, in truth, all you've done as a parent is reproduced your impatience that got your life in a mess into their life, and now they're going to be a mess. It isn't hard. It isn't complicated. Look at the last part of verse 28. And increases the transgression among men. There's two great principles here that need to be seen and understood. Now the first aspect of increasing the transgression among men will be the aspect of false religion. In particular, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 23, which is, is the most negative chapter in all the Bible. Uh, therefore, it's my favorite chapter because I'm so negative. It's the most negative chapter in the Bible uh, on false preaching and false teaching. 39 verses of sheer negativity. It deals with any false religion. The context is the Roman Catholic Church that builds itself on drawing people into her uh, and then sending them to the lake of fire after she throws them through the ditch. And as our verse says, it increases the transgression of men. Verse 13 through 15 says, But woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! 
Uh, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither go in yourself, neither suffer them to go in, go entering in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, for you can pass sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself. You see, religions increase the transgression of men. He says in verse 25 through 28, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, uh, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchre, that's a tomb, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. Even so ye outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And he says in verse 33, um, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how shall you escape the damnation of hell? You know what these false religions do? They increase the transgression of men. The Jehovah Witnesses started in 1860 with one man. There's eight million of them today. The Mormon church started in 1800 with one man. There's 16 million of them today. The Church of Christ started in 1850. There's 2 million of them today. The Unity started in 1889 with one couple of people. Now there's 1 million of them. The Seventh-day Adventist started in 1830, and now there's 20 million of them. And the Roman Catholic Church started in 325 A.D. or 400 A.D., and there's 1.2 billion of them. That increases the transgression among men. And they, through their false doctrines of devils and their, and their, under the guidance of the mother harlot, Roman Catholic Church, Revelation 7 and 18, have increased the transgression, verse 28, of men that goes on all the time. Now, the second one is a real killer. And that will be the breakdown of the Christian family. It's hard to believe that we as a Christian mom and dad could increase the transgressions of men. But I'm going to show you how that happens, and I hope you're listening. It's moms and dads who forget the aspect of God's plan and family as God's heritage. Instead of sending their kid to the world with a gospel, they send them to the world with a beer in their hand. And the mission of God that was started in your life stops with you. And it goes no farther in your family. And you increase the transgression of men uh, through the lack of building your family for ministry. And in the future generations of your family, after two generations, it's all gone. Nothing. They're now as far from God and headed for hell, and the good work that he started in you got canceled. Some of the greatest preachers of the 1960s and the 70s, if I told you their name, you would know of them, and they're now dead. And here we are just two generations later. Their churches are gone, their kids are gone, and their grandkids are gone. Their kids are out in the world marrying unsafe people, and their course is now set to lose all touch with the plan of God that was in their original father when God saved him. Absolutely no understanding of God's heritage and your children being the fruit for God and their family carrying on the work that God started in them. Now they've never, they, 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 that's because they never built people, they just built buildings. And today, those huge buildings that you could go to in Detroit, Michigan, 
Canton, Ohio, Kansas City, Florida, wherever you want to go, stand as monuments to their stupidity. God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that all the families of the earth would be blessed by God's people through the families. In the Old Testament, God's plan was carried out through the families within the 12 tribes. The reason for the strict discipline with their children was because of the fact that God had to ensure under the law that those families stayed intact. Look at Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 14. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 through 10. Look at, look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18. You know what? Some of you kids, I, I watch you. I know. Some of you kids, you rebel against your parents. You won't listen to your parents. You do your own thing. You cuss your parents out. You give them all kinds of grief. You ought to thank God every day of your life you live in the New Testament instead of the Old Testament. Because that Bible says when you rebelled against your parents, they took you before the elders and you didn't do what's right. They got the elders together and they killed you. How's that for negativity? You know why he did that? You know why it's such a severe penalty? Because God knew if the family of Israel fell apart, the whole plan fell apart. You know why the Christianity today has fallen apart? Because the family has fallen apart. And God told us that the key to Abraham's walk with God and relationship with God had to deal with his family. He tells us in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, and the Lord may bring upon Abraham, that's what he has spoken to him. It was through the families. God's plan to reach the world will be the family that keeps God's heritage alive through generation after generation after generation, that long after you and I are gone, your kids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-great-grandkids have a legacy that you gave to them of where you stood. They understand who you were. They understand what you stood for. And the good work that God started in you never quits until he comes back for us. Psalm 127.3, Lo, children are the heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward, not yours. Not in this life, anyhow. And today, ask yourself, ask yourself, what have you built into your child? That's a fair question. I mean, what have you built your child to be? Is he a great ball player? Can he hit balls out of the ballpark? Is he a great football player? He can break tackles and make touchdowns and win games? Are they great in academics? Are they going to get the scholar award or the, uh, all the great awards that you get for being smart? I don't know what they are because I never got to that point in my life. <laughs> are they great in music? Do they sing and play and do all this stuff wonderfully? I mean, you got to ask yourself, what, in, what have you built your child to be? And now, all those things are, are good, and I'm not saying they're wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But many times what happens, they take the place of ministering by your side in God's ministry. He says, my son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. God's plan to reach the world in our New Testament time is and always will be strong families. 
centered around the Word of God. In this church, we'll only be as strong as the families that are in it. Had nothing to do with me. Has everything to do, obviously, with the Bible. But in reality, it has to do with what you do with it. This church will only be as strong as its weakest link. It'll only be as strong as the weakest family. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where when we go to camp in a couple of weeks, my goal is to dial those kids into the family. To go after their hearts in my preaching. Help them see the legacy and the heresy, uh, the, the, the heritage that they have. You know what the problem is? I spend all week, preach my heart out, preach my lungs out, get those kids right. Then I bring them back to give them to parents who don't give a flip. And then four months later, we're right back where we were before. In the ditch! Because they'll come back, they'll have their hearts changed, they'll have their life changed, and they'll see mom with her boyfriend, dad with his girlfriend at the house doing this, doing that. They'll see the world and all the stuff with it, and they'll see no caring about mom or dad and the things of God anymore. And after about three weeks, back, back in the ditch. You know what my prayer is for you, honestly? Some of you kids, because I want you to get a full reward, but I'm afraid in many of your cases, the only way you're going to get a full reward is if camp's over at 8.30 and the Lord comes back at 9 o'clock. He's going to have to catch you when you're at your best, because when you go home, it won't last that long. And that's a tragedy. In this church. That's a tragedy. I'm just telling you. Mom and dad got a million things, and most of it revolves around what they want to do. Some of it isn't very good. Some of it they've taken clear advice against what they should be doing. But I'll go after their hearts. I'll do everything I can to preach to them to get them where they'll be, because maybe, just maybe, just maybe, they'll be the exception to the rule. But it doesn't happen very often. I had people in my ministry that, over the years, one in particular not too long ago, mom and dad were a disaster. I, I can't even tell you some of the things that, in, in what I would even try to tell you some of the things that mom was into. Dad was the biggest goofish you ever saw in your life. Mom and dad left the church, you know, and went wherever they went and whatever they're doing, and one of the kids stayed here. And I watched you guys pour your heart into that kid. I watched you give that kid everything that, that they needed. I watched you love them. And I know I'm not putting any gender to it because I got three or four that fit in this scenario and that way you'll never be able to figure it out because that's not important. The principle's important. And I watched you put into their life everything. I watched you be there for them, help them, walk them through their tough times, be there for them. And at the end of the day, after all that you did for them, the hours that you spent with them, they got hooked up with the wrong person and turned around and without even saying thank you, stuck a sharp stick in your eye. Now, a lot of people get upset about things like that. I never do. I learn from those because I observe. 
You know what I've learned from situations like that over the years? I'm going to tell you something. And there are very few exceptions to this. Maybe one in 10,000. But here's what I've learned. When it comes to your kids, I can put the best people I have with them. I can give you the best girls to work with your daughter. I can give you the best guys to work with your daughter. I can just pour everything into them. I can work with them. What did I say? Well, you know what I'm saying. But you know what the bottom line is? We can't take the place of the damage that you did as a parent. I can't fix that. Sooner or later, after all that we endeavor to do, they'll go back to what mom and dad trained them to be. That's just the way it works. That is the power of parenting. Now, there are exceptions to that. And I've had my share of good exceptions, but that is not the norm. The norm is that you can pour yourself into somebody like that at the end of the day. They're going to go just like mom and dad went because we cannot undo the damage that a parent will do not doing what's right. You need to observe that. You need to learn from that. You need to listen to that. Keeping that good work going that God started in your life the day you got saved. Finding out if you really do have a new heart. At least ask yourself if you do why you're still playing games with it. And it all comes down to the bottom line is that we don't have God's heart. We want to have God's heart on Sunday morning for a little while and then we go back to our own heart the rest of the week. God's heart will keep you from where you don't need to go. God's heart will keep you that when you hang up with your buddies and they're all getting beer, you'll say, no thanks, I got a new heart. It's the fundamental difference between a saved person and a lost person. And I'm not saying that a saved person can't be that way. I'm just saying, you'll never have God's life going for you till you get God's heart. And when you get God's heart, it changes everything about you. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer.